Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. You can check out our courses, our community, and everything we do at one commune. Com. If you've listened to the show in the past, you've probably heard me volley around this quote from the French philosopher Pierre Teilhard. We are not human beings having a temporary spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a temporary human experience. And the more I read and listen, the more that I am convinced that in fact we are living between two realities, a subjective one that conforms to time and space, location and form, the reality that Lao Tzu calls the world of the 10,000 things, and the infinite reality of the soul, the spirit, that does not take physical form, one that is not easily perceived through the limited ability of our five senses, but exists in the mystery that we call consciousness. Now, these realities are not distinct. In fact, you, as infinite consciousness, is experiencing the human condition through a wide array of phenomena that includes objects, thoughts, and emotions. We exist within this paradoxical duality of infinite time and timeless presence. Now, one of the inevitable facets of our human reality is loss, more bluntly, death the physical death of a loved one, the death of a marriage or of a friendship, a job, the sale of the family home. Unless you are incapable of love, and that sounds bleak, then in life you will grieve some kind of loss. The question is, how does one grieve? There's not a lot of guidance on this subject. I certainly don't remember being taught in school after my mathematics class how you grieve Grammy's death. Now meet David Kessler, the world's foremost expert on healing, loss, and grief. His experience with thousands of people on the edge of life and death has taught him the secrets to living a happy and fulfilled life, even after life's tragedies. In his new book, Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief, David beautifully outlines not only how to accept and acknowledge loss, but how to find meaning in it, how to channel grief into purpose. You can find out about David and this important work at sixthstage.com. I speak to David Kessler on the show today. My name is Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. My name is David Kessler, and I am a grief specialist. A grief specialist. I don't, I don't. When I'm asked to check the box on one of those forms, I rarely see that particular vocation. Can you unpack that for me a little bit? Sure. You know, I often think about no one's in the third grade and goes, let's see, police officer, uh, fireman, grief specialist, I'll do that. So I don't think it's a profession you choose sometimes as much as it chooses you. Hmm. And so that's what it did when I was young. I had a um, 
mother who was ill most of my life, you know, up to 13 years old. She was in and out of hospitals. And then when I was 13, she got really sick. She had to go to an out-of-town hospital for a new procedure called dialysis back then. And uh, she had a very sterile experience in an ICU. It was sort of the new age in the 70s of the ICU and the medical technology. And while we were there at the hotel across the street, uh, broke out a fire, which then once the fire trucks came, they realized it was actually an active shooter starting the fire. And it turned out to be one of the first mass shootings in the U.S. Mm. So in a period of just a few days, I dealt with my mother's death, a mass shooting, and I have a bent that puts me in relationship, work with people a lot, because while my mother was dying, my parents decided to have an intense monogamy interaction with me present. That's just screws up your mind. So I've really had to hone my talent in on dealing with loss, relationships, attachment, hmm. helping people. So you, you were 13, 14 years old? 13 years old. Of course, this is a very, that's a very acute situation. I mean, and rare. But still, I can't imagine that there was a lot of available help for you as a 13-year-old back in the 1970s, having undergone that level of tragedy. And it's interesting. I say in a lot of ways... I grew up to be the person that could have maybe helped him and helped my parents. Yeah. So, yeah, I became what was needed in a strange way. And, you know, I think of my work now and I think whether we're talking about a loved one dying, a breakup, a divorce, a betrayal, all those things, a job loss that we go through, that my work now is helping people realize that in our modern world, after you have a change, grief, relationship ending, whatever it may be, we often perceive ourselves as broken. Mm. And then we arrive to the rest of our life broken. Mm. Broken in the new relationship. Broken for the years we have left here. Broken for the new marriage. And my work is about recognizing and helping you find peace with the loss that has occurred, but also helping you to find your whole self again to bring into the rest of your life or the next relationship. Yeah. And I think we're grief illiterate. We don't know how to do that. It has, it wasn't taught to us. Yeah. I think it's, it's um, important to, point out and articulate the fact that you're not just caring for people in hospice or during palliative care or a death, you know, after a death of a family member, but that grief, that the situations um, are broad and the kinds of grief and loss are also broad. Right. My lectures and retreats, some of them are geared around breakups, divorce, betrayal, Others are geared around a loved one dying. Mm. Others are geared around changes that take place in the workplace. So all of those transitions we make in life, I work around. And, and a lot of it is um, more so these days, 
with people trying to find the rest of their life and trying to make life work after. Right, right. You had a, a mentor um, named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Elizabeth right? Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And um, you authored some, co-authored some books with her, right. right? I did a book on grief and grieving and another one, Life Lessons. And she helped to codify what are, I, I suppose you've brought into these kind of five stages Correct. of grief. Can you sure. articulate so, those? And maybe ab- articulate them around like a situation so people can actually really sure. understand how they might apply to them. So I want to start with a disclaimer that some people, when they hear the five stages, are like, oh, got it. Know them, love them. Other people are like, it doesn't unfold that way. Don't tell us what to do. So I want to let everyone know I'm going to clarify those sort of nuances in them. So I'll explain them first. There is first, the five stages are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Denial is that I can't believe this is happening. I mean, I can't believe you served me with divorce papers. I can't believe we're breaking up. I can't believe they died. And denial is a positive coping mechanism. We couldn't take all the pain of the divorce or the death or whatever it is in one moment, in one day. So our psyche spaces it out for us. And that I can't believe it is a little bit of a bridge over the pain. Hmm. That I can't believe this has happened. Then some people will experience anger. I'm a anger is my go-to emotion. So some people will go to anger. Anger, I always say, is pain's bodyguard. Mm-hmm. We encounter the anger first, but the pain is underneath. Mm-hmm. Then there's what's called bargaining. Bargaining is all the what-ifs and regrets. What if I had just called? What if I'd kept better shape? What if I had not allowed him to hire that secretary? What if I had, you know, taken them to the doctor that day? What what if I had called? And there's so many situations around illness, addiction, death by suicide, breakups, divorce that we're left with. If only I had done this different, right. they'd yeah. still be here. Right. So that's the bargaining. And then we have the depression. Now, I clarify with people, I'm talking about situational depression. It's not clinical depression. Situational depression is they served you with divorce papers. They're breaking up with you. They died. Those are depressing situations. In themselves, it's depressing. So many times in our modern world, we use the word depression and we think clinical depression. But the translation I ask people to make is when we say depression to really think sadness. We don't use the word sadness anymore. So think about someone will say, oh my goodness, we got some bad news over lunch. We went into a whole depression, but we're fine now. Really? You went into a whole depression at lunch and you're better now? Wow. Was it like a drive-through, you know, rehab you went to? Like, well, how'd you get through that so quickly? But really, we use the word depression when we mean sadness. And so there's that sadness we experience, that they are gone, the relationship's over. And then there's acceptance. And people think acceptance means you have to like it, you have to be okay with it, 
you're never going to like it. You're not going to be okay with it. But acceptance is about acknowledging the reality of it. And so those are the five stages, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. But I want to say they are not a map for grief. You don't have to follow them. They're not linear. People cycle through them a hundred times a day. So I tell people don't get caught up in the model because the world has sort of turned them into five easy steps for grief. And they don't work that way. They're much more organic. Kubler-Ross would sort of hate how they've been neatened up into like five things you go through. Right, right. Just for clickbait for the internet. Right, right, exactly. Um, And you, I mean, what happens to people if they're not, because it's pretty easy to get stuck in one of those stages, getting stuck in the sadness or depression, getting stuck in the anger, getting stuck in the bargaining and the what ifs. I mean... And those are the tools no one teaches us these days. That's what we don't know how to do. Right. So we can live in one of those stages in perpetuity almost. Stuck is the word that people use, the word you just use there. They will often say, I'm stuck in, and they will literally get stuck in, if only I had called. Right. They will get stuck in, I can't believe it, whatever it may be. And that can end up manifesting in... A million things, weight gain, you know, losing weight, not eating right, you know, addiction, unhealthy relationships, attachment disorders, a million things. I often say it's not the cause of everything, but you find it almost in anything. Are the tools for being able to navigate and process grief so important because grief is an inevitable fact of life? Yes. And one of the things we don't understand is pain from loss is inevitable. Suffering is optional. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I can't take away anyone's pain. The pain of you losing your husband, your wife, your pet, I can't take that away. That pain is actually part of the love. But the suffering is the noise your mind makes. The blame, the self-blame, the blaming of others, the regrets, Mm -hmm. you know, all that crazy noise in our mind. Yeah, you beautifully quote Viktor Frankl in your new book, who addresses that idea. I mean, in, in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he talks about Freud, and Freud essentially says something to the effect that you make man hungry and they all and everyone becomes the same. And Frankl is quick to point out, he's like, actually, you were making that observation on some, you know, Victorian design couch or something. (laughs) I was in Auschwitz, and I saw the exact opposite. In fact, people in their most suffering state, you saw the differences between them. Some gave their last pieces of bread, their shoes away to others who were less fortunate. And that essentially gets at what you just said, that we cannot control what life services serves us up, but essentially we can always maintain control over our attitudes and responses to those things, even in the most awful and dire of circumstances. Right. And, you know, I think of Viktor Frankl's work. I think of the work. I wrote a book with Louise Hay, You Can Heal Your Heart, with Kubler-Ross. And 
really looked at all this pain that goes on in the world. And I understand the concept from a very ethereal that things are a test in this lifetime and all that. But on a practical level, I try to help people understand your loss is not a test. It's not a blessing. It's not a gift. It's not a punishment. Loss is what happens in this lifetime. Mm -hmm. Somehow we became the generation that thought loss would be optional, but people we love are going to die. People are going to break up with us. We're going to break up with people. People, divorces will happen. What comes afterward is what I was interested in. Mm -hmm. What do we do after the event happens? How do we hold it in a healing way versus a wounding way? Yeah. And that's, I think, what sort of, you know, it, that concept of after acceptance, is there possibly meaning? Yeah. I want to get I want to get there because that's of course the subject of the of your book. Um, I do think though it's interesting you you, you make this one point early on, um, and I think it derives from this Eric Fromm notion is that you can avoid grief. You can. It's optional this lifetime, but, but <laughs> you will avoid love. You will avoid connecting with a pet. You will avoid connecting with friends. You will avoid romantic relationships. And what kind of life is that? What kind of life is that? So in a way, when you feel grief, you're also sort of acknowledging within yourself your capacity to love. And grief is pain, but grief is also love. And we think about it as only pain. And part of the finding the meaning is the idea of love, that love exists even in those hideous situations. The other concept that I have always found somewhat perplexing, confusing, fascinating, is uh, I heard Maslow say something to this effect, which is that one of the faults or deficiencies of self-actualized people is that they get over loss like it never really happened because they have an innate sense that we are infinite, that we are infinite spiritual beings sort of, sort of experiencing humanity as this temporary phenomena. And that that in a way is its own sort of way to avoid the tumult of the material world. But I'm not sure that many people can live within that space, or if it's even true. Well, and another way of looking at that is I teach people when we're trying to support, and this is especially important for the people who are in sort of the spiritual community, is what happens is as we go to support people, sometimes they are in the humanness of the loss mm. and we're giving them the spirituality. Mm. So when I say to you, mm. breakfast is hideous, I sit at a table alone and you go, your wife will always be with you. She still exists on another plane. You didn't witness my pain. Yeah. I was telling you what it's like to sit at the table. We're going to be talking about one of my own losses, but I just want to go there for a moment. Marianne Williamson, one of the things that she supported me so much through one of my 
hideous losses. And she would say to me sometimes on the phone, do you want a human response or the spiritual response? Mm. And I thought that was really amazing that she, I mean, it's not surprising that it's Marianne Williamson who thought that, but that idea that, you know, sometimes we are just wanting someone to go, it must be hideous sitting at that table. And there's other times we do want a spiritual reminder that we're eternal, that we're going to connect with them again, that underneath this pain of the divorce, there's actually some love there that will exist in another place in another time. Mm -hmm. So after acceptance, after acknowledgement, where do you go from there? I thought about that concept of meaning, and I thought about, could there be a sixth stage? And I began researching the idea of meaning. And could meaning really help us in our modern world now with breakups, divorce, betrayal, loved ones dying? Could there be something more than acceptance? And I felt like we're a generation now that we're not okay with just acceptance. Really? That's it? Really? I'm just going to accept it? Really? So I, I started writing about meaning, and I thought, I wonder, could this be a book? So I began writing about it. And while I was writing, as you do sometimes, you put it aside and you go do lectures or other things, I'd put it aside and I was going to get back to it. And I have two sons. My younger son, David, tragically, unexpectedly died. And I found myself in the epicenter of the world I had been teaching about. Um, and, you know, people will often say, oh, my gosh, what was it like for the grief expert to, like, lose his son? And I would go, it was actually the father who had to bury his child. I mean, that's who I was in that moment and still am in a lot of ways hideous, enormous pain, canceled everything, you know, had no idea what the rest of my life would look like. And at one point, probably six months into it, I was in my office and I was putzing around and I came across the stack of papers that were like the six stage meaning. And I looked and I went, oh yeah, like that's going to help with this pain. Because I was like, this is a pain that, like, there's nothing going to help. And I began reading it. Mm. And it didn't take the pain away, but it gave it a cushion. It gave it a companion. Mm. And I thought, this is, this is something I do need to explore more. Mm. And that really became the new book, Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief. The idea that the Kubler-Ross family and foundation gave me permission to add a sixth stage to her iconic stages. Was mm -hmm. I'm eternally grateful to them. Yeah, you could say that this work is a bridge between two banks of a river. Your one bank as your the grief expert and one bank as a father. Right. I remember one of the things that happened fairly early on is maybe a month after my son died, a friend who was 43 years old, like this amazing yoga dance teacher, the epitome of health, got the flu and died. I mean, we hear every year there's some deaths, but 
not our friend who's the yoga teacher who's healthy. And another friend had a 17-year-old dog die. And as I was sort of with both of their families, there was moments where they went, how can you comfort us? I mean, your son. And I said to them, all tears count. You know, I think it's important to recognize that, you know, pain will off, people will often go, what's the worst grief? Is it this? Is it this? Is it divorce? Is it a death? Or whatever it may be. All of them are unique, but the worst grief is always yours. You know, what you're going through is the worst one, and that's the one you need to honor. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was talking with Michael Beckwith here last week, and, you know, I... It, it seems easy to um, create some sort of odd, twisted hierarchy around grief, like right. that the loss of a child, for example, the disorder of that, the chaos of that would create sort of proportionally more grief because it's sort of out of time, you know, versus losing, you know, your grandmother who's had a full life and in her 90s. But would you, but is that, is that not fair really? Because it's much more complex than that. So can I make a case for my grief is the worst that my son died and it's out of order? Absolutely, I can make that case. I can also make a case that's my worst grief. But I can make a case for the person whose one companion for 17 years has been their dog Mm -hmm. that's been in their bed every night, that's greeted them upon coming home, that sat at their feet for 17 years. That's their worst grief. I can make a case for the person who says, my husband, my wife, and I were supposed to have a life together. And... Out of the blue, they found someone else and they've replaced me. And and I hear this a lot in divorce. People will say, I've had my brother die. I've had my parents die. The divorce grief is the worst for me mm-hmm. because there's literally someone alive rejecting me every day yeah. who's walking on the planet. Yeah. So I don't think it's a productive discussion. No. I think my job is to help you honor and pay attention to your grief and to help witness your grief because we're always going to lose the who's got the worst grief. It's always got there's Look, the truth is, with my son dying at 21, I can tell you five other experiences I've helped people with in the last two weeks that were more hideous. There's just hideous things in the world. So there's always going to be a grief worse than yours and always going to be a grief not as bad as yours. But your job is to sit with your own grief and honor it and feel the pain and find a way to heal it and integrate it. You know, I think the goal of grief work is to remember that person or that relationship with more love than pain in time at your own pace. explore how it is possible despite how anyone might feel at any at at a at a moment where loss is so prescient how is it possible to find meaning in that loss in that suffering in that grief 
what do you do? How do you start? You have to start with feeling the feelings. And you would think that would be easy for our generation, but it's actually not. We're like one of the first generations that we have feelings on feelings. I'm angry, but I don't have a right to be angry. I'm guilty, but I should feel better about things. I'm sad, but I don't want to wallow in it. And I tell people, don't listen to the comments of your mind. If you're feeling sad, feel sad. If you're feeling angry, feel angry. Whatever it is, you can't heal what you don't feel. You have to feel it. People are worried about what I call the gang of feelings. If I start crying, I'll never, it'll never end. I'm here to tell you it will stop and start again. It will end at some point and then maybe start again. But you have to feel those feelings. When you have fully felt the feelings authentically as they came up, the intensity will begin to change. The frequency will begin to change. And meaning can begin to creep in if you begin to plant the seeds of it. I'm not teaching people to find meaning in how they died. Their murder, their death, the divorce, the betrayal, there, there may just not be any meaning in that. But isn't there meaning from your time with them? Wasn't their life meaningful? What part of them lives in you? What can you take into the future? Or if they did die tragically, how can you change the world so other people don't die that way? I also share the story in the new book. There was a woman who, um, her father had been in vaudeville and loved Danny Thomas and Milton Berle and all those guys. And one day she's just buying post, you know, postal. She's in the post office getting stamps and they flip out all these books. And she's like, I just want a forever stamp. And she's like looking and do I want an astronaut, a flower? What do I want? She sees this Danny Thomas stamp, which makes her think mm -hmm. of her dad. She buys them. She doesn't frame them. She uses them as stamps. Mm -hmm. Just like randomly in the middle of her day, if she's got to pay a bill and she takes out a stamp, she has a sweet moment with her dad. Yeah, That's a moment she created just to help honor him. That's in the mundane. Yeah. No, it's that finding the beauty in the everyday, right? I mean, my grandfather, I was very, very close to him. He was sort of the loving, warm patriarch um, of the family, helped me through school, used to get up every morning bright and bright and early and say good morning to the sun. Uh, I remember watching him out on the patio kind of with his outstretched arms, sun beaming down on his face. Um, and I remember quite vividly that the day that he passed away and I went on to the roof. This was in New York City. I went on to one of those classic tarred roofs of New York. And uh, and it was a cold, sort of cloudy, overcast day. And, you know, the clouds parted and the sun came down and caressed my face in a very particular way. And now every time I step out into the sun, I, I have a feeling, you know, a warm, beautiful feeling. Um, and I try to channel that um, into generosity because he was so, so generous. And in a way, and this was not obvious to me at, at first, um, 
I feel as close to him as I as I've as I ever felt. Um, but that is a but it is a process, um, and uh, a long process for me because I didn't have right. someone like you. Around. Well, and just think about what what you just described there. You talked about meaningful moments around his death right after he died. You talked about how my guess is if you happen to be witnessing a sunrise, you probably bring him to that memory. Mm. You think about him as you embrace the sun at different times. And he lives in you. He brought a smile to your face. You know, you carry a part of him with you. Mm. And so I think about, you know, energy can't be destroyed that that interesting concept that when someone dies people will often go they take a part of me with them but a part of them is left behind in you yeah you know that it's that interesting exchange about how are you going to honor that how are you going to honor the memory of them how are you going to honor who they were why they lived how they touched you so with all the wisdom that you've been able to acquire over dedicating your professional life to this subject. Um, going back and beholding you at 13 in New Orleans, um, witnessing and dealing with the death of your mother and then with also a mass shooting, what would you say what would you how would you counsel that young boy now well if i could talk to him i would probably whisper and just say there's more this is not all there is in life this is what all of life feels like now but there is more hmm. and i think that's still something i help people to try to understand in the depths of their sadness there is more you know, it's interesting. I I will sometimes say to people when they say, nope, it's over. I'm never going to love again. I'm never going to have another relationship. I'm never going to have a full life now that they've died or now that we've divorced. I'll tell them, you know, so many of us are alive but not living. I'll say, when you go home and you're alone, check out your toenails. They're still growing. Your fingernails are still growing. Your hair's still growing, often as we get older in the wrong places, but it's still growing. Right. You were continuing. We can shut down or we can go with that life that continues. And our tendency is to shut down after in so many ways hmm. that this has been a permanent loss. And I try to tell people that life, that death, unfortunately, physically is permanent. But the damage doesn't have to permanently destroy your life. Right. You can integrate it and honor it and remember it and feel the pain of it, but create a life after it that would make your loved one proud or utilize everything that you went through in that relationship to empower the next relationship rather than to paralyze the next relationship. You... Um are an incredibly vibrant, vivacious, gregarious 
person with a very kind of optimistic and uplifting spirit that seems on the surface to belie what you do every day. Correct. How does that square? So first of all, I tell people, number one, you would not want to be with a grief expert that like, you know, it looks like they're at their edge. Um, And what I'm trying to help people find is this. Um, It's interesting at my lectures, you know, they're often in hotels. We rent out meeting rooms or in hotels and next to us is the accountant's annual meeting and the healthcare practitioner's annual. And, you know, there's 12 meetings going on. And at the end of the day, Everyone's gone. The cleaning crew's in there and they'll go, hey, what, what, what was your meeting? And I'll go, why do you ask? And they go, because they were laughing the most. And I'll go, grief? And they'll go, well, what kind of grief? And I'll go, that kind of grief. If you are willing to go all the way into the pain, there is a bandwidth that you will find that not only stretches you into the worst of this life, but also stretches you into the happiness of this life. We are all about the peaks. Yeah, all those goals, do it, you can do it, all that. But we avoid the valleys, and the valleys make us appreciate the peaks. The people in my life that have died have just left a hole in my heart that will never be filled until the day I'm with them. And... I cried about them yesterday, and I may cry about them today, but I will, when I cry, I will be absolutely fully in that sadness, and it will pass, and then the next moment, they may bring a smile to my face, and then the next moment, I'm doing a podcast, and we're just chatting about a new book, and I think it is the willingness to go into the darkness, the shadow side that I think does make me the optimist and happy. And I also know it is a decision we have to make. It is a decision we have to make that I I clearly knew after my son died this could really end my work. Mm -hmm. I, I knew there was a good possibility that if I said not doing grief work anymore, no one would argue with me. They go, yeah, after what you've been through, shooting, sun dying. No, no, we get it. I could go do balloons. (laughs) I don't know why, but I could go do balloons. Sure. Balloons just seems like a light job, (laughs) filling them with helium all day. But You kind of are doing that. (laughs) I kind of am doing that, right? But I thought about my son. Mm. My son loved my work. Mm. My son was so proud of my work. My son's death could constrict this work or it could expand it. What would he want? He would want it to expand it. So the meaning I find doesn't negate the pain, but it's there in addition to the pain. Well, David, I think the highest expression of being human is sort of loving, selfless service. And I think we owe you a great debt for doing what you do. Um, A place where not very many people want to spend their time. And uh, we're very grateful for that selfless service. 
Thank you very much. Oh, well, thank you. I really appreciate it. God bless you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the show today. I hope that you can apply some of David's teachings to your own life as we all share some story of loss and pain. I urge everyone to learn more about David and his work at sixthstage.com. If you have any comments or questions about today's show or the podcast in general, please email me at jeffk at onecommune.com. I promise to read every email that comes in my inbox. That's all from the commune for this week. I'm Jeff Krasno, and I'll see you next time. Yeah.